Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast is brought to you by TennisExpress.com. Please check them out this week by going to EssentialTennis.com slash express. Thank you for joining me on today's show, and I've got a great guest, Dr. Patrick Cohn, a men- mental expert, mental toughness expert. He and I talk about three great topics. Before we get to that, I want to let you all know that Doubles Domination 2.0 is coming out very soon. I've been working really hard on it. It's going to be awesome. Much, much better than the first release that I had, which was still a good product, but Doubles Domination 2.0 is going to be much improved, a lot more content, a lot of video content, and it's going to cover a much wider range of topics. Definitely a a more advanced course than the first one was. If you want to be up to date on what's happening and when it starts coming out, Go to doublesdomination.com, put in your name and email address, and you'll know as soon as I start releasing information about it. And that'll be in a couple weeks. I just wanted to give you guys a heads up and let you know that it's coming. And I'm really excited for the release of of the second version of that product. All right, let's get down to business. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. My guest today on the podcast is Dr. Patrick Cohn. He's a master mental game coach and is the author of sportspsychologytennis.com. He also has a, a podcast dedicated to mental toughness in tennis, which is called the Tennis Psychology Podcast. I definitely suggest that. All of you listening, go go check it out. It's a great show. And Dr. Cohn, I, I think you've done, what, 70-some 70, 70 episodes now? Yeah, I think we're up to about 70 episodes, really short episodes, just Q&A, people send in questions or we use survey questions and uh, we only take about three or four minutes to answer the questions, so they're real short. Well, it's a great resource and and mental toughness questions are are one of the most common on on my show, so I know that my listeners are interested in that topic and I, I went and checked out your website before we started recording here and you've got them all archived there, which is great. So a lot of good topics, and I definitely recommend that all of you listening go check it out. Uh, Dr. Cohn, before we get to our questions, can you please tell those of my listeners who maybe haven't heard our previous shows, which, which by the way, if, if you're listening, you should definitely go check those out. Can you please give a little bit of background on yourself for those of my listeners who aren't familiar with you yet? Uh, yeah, I'm primarily a mental coach. That's all I do is I work on, on the mental game. I've been working with junior tennis players for um, about four or five years, but I've been involved in mental coaching for over 20 years now. Um, and uh, the main website that we have is peaksports.com. That's the mothership. But we also have sportspsychologytennis.com, which is devoted exclusively to tournament tennis players and helping tournament tennis players um, improve their mental game. So um, that's my specialty. I only work specifically on helping players with the uh, mental game. Awesome. Well, it's a, it's a 
great topic for tennis players. And so I'm happy to have you on the show again. Thanks for, for spending your time with me and my listeners. No problem. Glad to join you. All right. So let's go ahead and start answering some, some questions. And I've got four of them here. Two of them are, are within the same category. And I, we'll go ahead and start with that. And it has to do with the area of choking, which I know you're very, very familiar with, uh, it, you know, within a lot of different sports and areas that you work with. So I'll go ahead and read those questions quickly, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. The first person who asked about choking was Karen in California. She's a 4.0 player. She wrote to me and said, I've been in matches where I am up 5-2 in the first set and end up losing the first set in a tiebreak. This has happened to me three times now. I'm wondering if it's my mental toughness that is to blame, such that I get tight and I don't go for my shots as much when I'm leading, or my opponents just figure me out. And then Roberts in Sweden, a 3.5 player, wrote and said, When I am playing matches on a recreational basis, I often find myself uh, loosening my grip on the match when I'm ahead. Typically, this is after winning the first set relatively easily and then losing the second set after playing really bad tennis. I know of the term choking and think that's what's in play here, but I cannot get out of this bad mental state. So, Dr. Cohn, what do you think? How do we avoid playing well initially and then and then choking and then, and then giving away the match and starting to play poorly? Great questions that you're getting from your um, listeners and your readers, Ian. Um, let me throw out some terms first because I don't want to automatically assume that um, these people uh, that are writing in are are choking, okay? Because we use choking a lot, and I think tennis players can understand choking. So I think what we want to start to talk about, Ian, is number one, what is choking? Number two, what is a comfort zone, which I think may be in play here? Um, and number three, we want to talk about momentum. Those are three, you know, psychological characteristics that can happen um, during the match. And I believe, first of all, you have to take a look at what's the difference between being in a comfort zone and choking, and can they be related in some way? Um, So, first of all, choking to me is a response to um, extreme pressure that that an athlete feels or or, or places on him or herself, Mm -hmm. right? We have to understand that pressure doesn't come from the match situation. Just because you're leading 5-2, that's not pressure in and of itself. It's how you interpret what's going on for you in that match. Ah. And that's really where the source of pressure comes from. You know, people talk about pressure situations, pressure points. They're only pressure if you perceive it in that way. And you put expectation and you put pressure on yourself. So typically choking is when you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself and you start to tighten up and lose what I call trust in your skills, trust in your strokes. And so that could be one explanation for what's going on. But typically for me, choking, um, it doesn't happen when you're, when you're in command of the match, right? To me, when you're in command of the match, it's typically a comfort zone issue. Now, um, not too many people talk about comfort zone, but I'm very familiar with comfort zones. And in any situation when we're talking about a comfort zone is when you have a lead on your opponents. 
and maybe you're a little bit uncomfortable with that lead. In other words, maybe you didn't expect to be up 5-2 mm. in the first set. Sure. And sure. that's where the term comfort zone comes from, Ian. The term comfort zone comes from where you have a specific expectation about wh- how you think you're supposed to play the match, who's supposed to be leading, who's supposed to be winning the match. It's based, really, comfort zone is based upon a lot of preconceived expectations that you have. Typically, when a player gets up 5-2 and is in command, they're playing well. There's no re- real reason to, to have a choking response. I think some of the tension come in, but it's more about protecting the lead. When, when a, an athlete or when a tennis player is in the lead, even a team can do this, Ian. When a team is in the lead and they start protecting the lead, they don't play their normal style of tennis, sure. right? In addition to not playing their normal style, which got them in the lead in the first place, they're starting to worry about don't mess this up. Don't screw this up. I got this in hand. Now, the don't mess up can lead to some of the getting tight, some of the tension, maybe some anxiety, and now you're not going for shots. You're trying to play what I say. You're playing safe. I call it also you're playing more defensively, not from a strategy position, but more defensively from an attitude-type mentality, Sure. such as, don't miss the shot, don't hit it long, don't double fall. So you start looking at what not to do, which can cause you to tighten up well as well. Now, Ian, does that sound like a choking response, or does that sound like you're protecting your lead? That's that's the question, I think. Yeah, that's interesting, and I, I don't think that I've ever heard anybody phrase it quite that way as far as splitting those two things up into two separate categories i think that's that's really interesting and i've heard a lot of other people describe what you're talking about the protecting the lead as um playing not to lose as opposed to playing the win does that sound about right yes i would say that falls under the same category playing not to lose in this case it's playing not to screw up a lead right (laughs) because you're not losing you're playing to not mess up the lead let's just get through the match the other concept which I'll throw in the mix is momentum. And as you know, and I'm sure you've talked about on your podcast quite a bit, is the importance of this psychological momentum. When you give an opponent momentum and you, you get loose and, and they, they, uh, you drop a couple games and you give them the momentum shifts to, to your opponent, that can also change the dynamics of what's going on within the set itself. So um, if you get a little bit protective because of this comfort zone and you, you want to sit on the lead, then you give up the momentum, the momentum switched to your opponent. Now your opponent has confidence, and now you're reeling because you had a 5-2 lead and it just slipped away to a 5-4 lead. Sure. So you're giving the momentum, and, and so that can – also change the dynamics completely of the match as well so don't i don't want your listeners to strictly look at it as i'm choking i blew a 5-2 lead there's lots of other factors that can go into it such as changes in momentum comfort zone and sitting on the lead and it could be that you perceive it as a pressure situation and tighten up and do choke in that situation 
So going back to comfort zone, you talked about very often players get outside of their comfort zone because maybe whatever is happening within the match doesn't really line up with what their expectations were going into it. Can you talk a little bit or, or give some some tips on what should our expectations be? Should we go into a match with positive expectations? Should we go into a match with a kind of a neutral feeling and no expectations? What, from a mental toughness standpoint, what's the, the best way to handle that? Yeah, good point. Um, well, first of all, my theory is that you don't want to have expectations about who's supposed to win, who's supposed to lose the match. You want to go in and play your style of tennis that is going to be suitable for you and understand your opponent's weaknesses and, and base your style of tennis on what your strengths are and what your opponent's weaknesses are. Um, so, I mean, that's the first thing. Okay. So you really don't want expectations. You want a high level of confidence. And I've talked about this with you on previous um, shows that my formula that I talk about is having no expectations, but yet having high confidence. Okay. So, if you go into a match, for example, and you think, well, um, I haven't beat this person um, in three previous matches, it's going to be a really close match, um, and uh, there's, there's not a great probability that I'm going to win the match. If you go in with that type of thinking and you're up 5-2, that's where the protective defensive behavior comes in because it doesn't match what you previously thought about uh, because for whatever reason you're up and you didn't expect it to be that easy. You didn't expect you'd be up five two, And so that's when you go, wow, I could win the first set and you slam on the brakes and play protective. <laughs> right. So that's the example. So step number one, we can say is don't have any expectations at all about who's supposed to win the match and how easily the match is going to go. That's uh, step number one. Step number two, and it's probably even more important, is when you realize you're leading and you start to think, don't mess it up, don't screw this up, you got this in hand, that's when you have to make the adjustment mentally. You have to tell yourself, keep going for your shots, keep playing the same style that you played with that got you in this position, play one point at a time, and let's make sure I stay aggressive and do the things that got me in this position in the first place. So... On one side, Ian, is the, the player who is going to say, don't hit it out, don't double fault, make, make sure you pull the set out. On, on the other hand is the player that's trying to finish it out strongly. Keep playing aggressive, pressure your opponent into making mistakes, pull your opponent off the court. Someone that's being more um, in that more offensive mindset. So essentially what I'm saying, I don't mean to simplify all this, Instead of going defensive, you have to stay on the offensive mentally. Not so, I'm not so much talking about strategy now, but I'm saying for, you, you, you have to uh, be aware when you go into protect mode and be able to counter that, make the adjustment, and, and stay on the offense mentally. So it sounds like from a, a mental perspective, going into a match with preconceived notions or expectations is never really a great thing, is it? No, in any case, I, I don't think it's a good, no, it doesn't help. Okay. 
All right, great. Well, thanks very much for the explanation. Uh, great topic. I, I enjoy talking about that. And let's go ahead and go to our next one. We've got two more quick ones to get to. Next up is Andy in California. He wrote and said, Hi, Ian. I'm a junior player and have sort of a mental toughness problem. Whenever I'm playing a match or trying something new, I will sometimes not execute a certain shot correctly, miss it, and then try to fix the problem. If I do fix the problem, all is well. But if I don't, I continue trying to fix it. After several attempts to remedy the problem, I end up getting down on myself and getting frustrated. So basically, if I don't mess up, I don't get mad. But if I do mess up, I do get mad. <laughs> Is there any way to develop an attitude to avoid getting mad when I mess up? Another good question. You you must have handpicked this question for me, didn't you? <laughs> I, I um, didn't, but it's a good one. And, and yeah. you and I, I remember, talked about kind of perfectionism and, and this kind of attitude previously, but we didn't really go into very much depth. So I'm looking forward to your explanation here. Well, let me start with a short story. I was warming up with my uh, daughter who plays in the uh, 14s and, and 12s here in Florida, and um, she's working at making some changes on her serve. And she said, hey, Dad, can you take a look at what I'm doing here? And I said, no. <laughs> I said, but the warm-up is a warm-up. You do not practice in your warm-up. Uh, it's a time to get loose and to get ready. Sure. The same goes for the match with this particular player. The same goes for match time. When you're in a match, it's not time to fix anything because then you're just overanalyzing your game. Look, if it's broken and you're trying to fix it, it's not going to get better by the end of the match, most likely, unless it's a really tiny adjustment that you can make, like um, better footwork, uh, something like that. So I don't ever want my students to get into the fix-it mode and, and try to correct something that they think is wrong, which may not need correcting in the first place, sure. right? So what what do you do in that situation? Well, my recommendation is simple. Just after you make the mistake, just take the swing that you wanted and, and feel the shot that you wanted and then just let it go. So that's, that's for the over-analysis part, right? Mm -hmm. So once you've done that and you said, I'll, I'll fix it in my next practice, that's really what I want you to do is say, I'll fix it in my next practice. Let's get through the match. My recommendation is go to your go-to shot. For example, we call it a go-to shot, go to your bread and butter shot. Um, don't feel like you have to keep going back to the well if that shot's not working. Or if, you're, if, you're, if you're, um, your topspin backhand isn't working, go to the slice. Go to something that you can get through the match that's going to be functional and work for you. So that's another um, uh, way to deal with this over-analysis. I need to fix it now. You don't need to fix it now. Just find the stroke that's working and get through the match. Um, as opposed to getting mad, that's that's kind of a completely different situation for me. Sure. Um, because there's two situations we're talking about. We're talking about the over-analysis and trying to fix something in the middle of the match. And then we're talking about messing up and getting mad and emotionally getting upset with yourself. So they, they're, they're, I break it down into two different uh, mental game components there. Um, as far as getting mad, it starts once again, I go back to expectations. It starts with your expectations. If you expect to make 
no errors or execute all your routine shots, for example, um, and you don't, it's going to be a lot easier for you to become frustrated with yourself. Um, the second part of that is, is how you um, react to that, how you react or behave after the error, what you're thinking. What most people don't consider is they, they look at it in as a stimulus response. If I, if I miss a routine shot, I should automatically be upset. If I double fault, <laughs> I should automatically be upset. Right. If I miss an right. easy volley, I should automatically be upset. What they don't get is what happens in between the um, error and their emotional reaction is what they're thinking about that error. This, this comes straight out of the book of, of a, a psychologist named Ellis. I've kind of adapted some of his work. But basically what it's saying is it's, it's your thinking or your belief process about the error that ultimately causes you to be frustrated. It's not the fact that you made an error. So, um, uh, and Ellis would say uh, people are not upset by things that happen to them, like mistakes or th things they do. They're upset by how they think about those things. Hmm. Um, so it goes back to dealing with your thinking process, your reaction and your beliefs. So instead of thinking I should never double fault, this really stinks. You have to change that thinking to make the mistake. Okay. In your mind temporarily, that's how I, you know, simplify it. And as I say, how can you make that mistake in your mind? Okay. For that time being, we know it's not okay with you, but we need to make it okay. So you can play the next point without the monkey on the back. Right. right. So that I might work with that player and I might say, all right, double faults happen. You're not perfect. You're not a machine. Pros make double faults. Right. I was watching Cloisters. Mm -hmm. She double faulted this morning. I was watching some of the Australian Open. She made a double fault. She didn't let it get to her and bother her on the next service. Right. So, um, you, you, you have to be able to rationalize with yourself so that you can have a better emotional reaction. So it's kind of like it's a two-pronged approach for me, and the expectations you take into the match can set you up for feeling frustrated, and then also you have to work with your thought process or your belief systems about those errors in that moment so you have something different to go to. Well, I find that as a teacher and as a coach, I think that's one of the hardest things to work with students on, especially those that are, are really motivated and they're really working hard and, and they want to do their best, is that, you know, they, they come out to, to perform, hopefully, to their, you know, best of their ability. And yet, when they make mistakes, uh, I think it's very difficult for somebody with that kind of uh, goal uh, for that day in tennis to be okay with screwing up and not doing something to the absolute best of their ability. It's, it's kind of a, it's a difficult balance, isn't it? Oh, well, absolutely. But I'm, I'm going to add something to what you just said. I'm sure, sure you've worked with players, perfectionists. They, they may, they you're working on a stroke with them. They've made it, you made an adjustment and they're just hitting everything in the bottom of the net. Mm -hmm. But worse than that, worse than that, they can't work. They can't work through that change with you. They're so emotionally distraught that the lesson is just 
it's done. It's kaput. It's like you can't right. work with that player because there's, they've checked out emotionally. They've checked out from the lesson and think that they're inadequate. Right. I'm sure yeah. you've been there, right? Absolutely. And then uh, in a competitive setting, how many times have you seen a player just give away a match due to that kind of attitude as well? Same thing. Well, if they do it in practice, you know it's going to be three times as bad in a match. <laughs> right. <laughs> if, I, if I see that going on in practice, I know, well, in a match situation, um, it's going to be even tougher for them to control that. And they do absolutely check out. Um, a lot of the times that's where the tanking response comes mm -hmm. from. Yeah. Um, that's what I've seen where a player lose, lose um, you know, seven, six or seven, five, um, the first set and they'll be so upset and distraught. Well, they'll, they'll tank the second set because they're so upset. Sure. Did I, I don't know if I answered your question, but if you can go back and give me the, the, the question again, uh, the follow-up question on that, I'd be happy to. Oh, um, no, I, I think we covered it pretty well, actually. Um, and we have one more to get to still, so I'd actually like to move on if that's okay. Sure, that's great. Okay. Uh, well, good conversation on that uh, topic, and I know that's going to be helpful for Andy. And uh, lastly, we've got a question from Jeannie, and I'm, I'm really curious to see what your answer is to this one, Dr. Cohn. Uh, she's in Massachusetts, wrote and said, you know, I have a problem that I struggle with when winning. I start to feel sorry for my opponents. I was in a 3.5 singles tournament a couple years ago, won the first set easily, 6-1. My significantly younger opponent was hitting fiercely, but many of the shots were going out. I'm a steady, steady player with good mental toughness, except for this feeling starry business. After the first set, which I won 6-1, the opponent was obviously mentally distressed. She took a bathroom break, and when she came back, she was hitting without pace and very loopy. I took the bait and went for winners I shouldn't have. She won 6-4, same with the third set. Uh, she looked, <laughs> I love this sentence, she looked so happy at the end, I felt that I had done a good deed in losing, but a few hours later, I realized what I had done. Um, is this something you've ever dealt with, Dr. Cohn, is, is having a, a student uh, who actually ha has sympathy uh, for an opponent? Yes, this is not quite as common a question that I get, this is a little bit off the beaten track, but, um, <laughs> I have dealt with this. Is it Jeannie? Did you say? Yes. Yeah. What's the name? Jeannie. Bottom line. You're too nice. I bet she's <laughs> a really nice, a really nice lady or a really nice girl. And that's part of the problem. Okay. Um, what, what she's, what she's saying here, feeling sorry for your opponent. That means you care too much about really what others, Think. In other words, I believe, and I'm making some assumptions, Ian, that Jeannie wants to be liked by others. Jeannie likes that respect and wanting to be liked. We call it, we call it social approval uh, in my work, right? The moment you start feeling sorry for an opponent, um, <laughs> what you're saying is, I want that person uh, uh, to do well. I want that person to like me. I feel bad. You have to become a competitor. When you step on that court, you can't feel sorry for your opponent. And and I've heard this from some of the some of the younger um, junior uh, tennis players that I've worked with is they're friends with some of them, sure. right? They're all kind of in the same circles. They don't. Another reason is maybe she doesn't want to upset the friendship mm -hmm. as well. 
and she once again goes back to wanting to be perceived as nice, uh, worrying about how others perceive them, um, and really doesn't want to rock the boat. But the bottom line, I think, you know, I'm just setting some groundwork, I think, Ian, for for my my answer. But the bottom line is, when you step on the court, you have to transform into the competitor. You're you're no longer the street person or the student. Um, now you're the the warrior tennis player. I often go back and, and I talk about uh, an example from a movie um, with Russell Crowe. It was called The Gladiator. Oh yeah, pretty go- pretty gory movie. But anyways, what does Russell Crowe do before he goes into competition every time? Not too many people remember this, but he'll grab the sand and uh-huh. he'll start rubbing it in in his hands, and you see this face come over him like he's transforming into this competitor. He's n- no longer this nice guy. Now he's the competitor, and that's what Jeannie has to understand, that you do not have to be a nice girl when it comes to playing and competing and being competitive. I would say this is a generalization, but I would say – Girls are going to have more of an issue with this than I think men. That's because... inter- that's interesting. We we actually Jeannie and I actually exchanged some emails back and forth, and that was a secondary question of hers was, uh, do you feel like this is more of a female personality trait? And uh, I wasn't going to ask you actually because I didn't want to kind of throw you under the bus <laughs> with that question. But it's interesting that you bring it up. Well, I say like it, it is a generalization. It could be an overgeneralization, but typically, mm-hmm. when, when working with uh, my female students, they're more in, ter- in tune with others' feelings, hmm. right? And what others are perceiving, what others are feeling about them. Interesting. Um, now, it's not across the board, but I do see some of those commonalities. So, um, once again. You don't have to be nice to be a competitor and go out there and perform your best. You have to put aside any friendships. Is this a friend that she's playing or, or no? Do you know? I, I happen to know that this was not. This was somebody that she didn't know beforehand, no. Okay. So it may even get more difficult with friends when she's playing friends or people that she knows. I don't know. Sure. But to be a competitor, you have to go out there and put your put the pedal to the metal and not worry about what your opponent is feeling because feeling sorry for your opponent, what you're really saying is um, I'm beating her badly and she must feel really bad. And And I feel bad bad about about that. (laughs) Right. All right. Interesting. Uh, Very interesting topic. Uh, With Dr. Cohen, with that, we're going to wrap things up. And I want to thank you very much for your time and, and answering these questions. It's been great to have you on the show once again. And I definitely encourage my listeners to go back and check out the other shows that Dr. Cohn and I have done together at EssentialTennis.com slash podcast. And go subscribe to Dr. Cohn's podcast as well on iTunes. It's definitely worth checking out. Lots of good free information there. Again, it's called the Tennis Psychology Podcast. And you can check it out on his website as well for tennis, SportsPsychologyTennis.com. So, Dr. Cohen, thanks again for being on the show. It's been great having you. Hey, thanks for having me, Ian. All right. That does it for episode number 154 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. 
Thank you very much for joining me on today's show. I really appreciate having you as a listener. And if you'd like to give me some feedback on this episode, if you have any follow-up questions about anything that Dr. Cohn and I talked about, any comments, anything that you disagree about, etc., I'd love to hear from you. All you have to do is go to EssentialTennis.com slash podcast. Go to this episode, number 154, and leave a comment. I'd love to read it and reply, and I'd like to hear what you guys are thinking after each of these episodes. And now I'd like to read just two comments that were left about last week's show, number 153. We talked about some forehand myths, and I gave several drills to improve your forehand. Jerry wrote and said, Hi, Ian, what are the targets for the shots hit in the Spanish drill? Spanish drill is an excellent, excellent practice drill working on positioning. Um, Jerry, typically when I have students do the Spanish drill, I don't give them specific targets. Instead, we really focus in on footwork, positioning correctly. Every ball should be struck in a, at a comfortable spot around waist height, and we focus on technique. So this is a, a drill or, or a, a time during a lesson or practice where my student is really focusing in on those elements. Obviously, ultimately, where the ball goes is important, but we're really focusing just on those elements for right now. The only instruction I really give is don't hit me because <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm standing in, in the court in front of them. So I, I usually tell them just, to just hit the ball straight ahead and focus on the positioning and the, and the technique of their swing. And then secondly, I want to read a, a comment from Lloyd. And Lloyd and I went back and forth several times in the comments for episode number 153. He had some good observations and something that I want to address just real quickly. He wrote and said, Nadal starts his forehand with the racket up, does a partial C, and then the racket head definitely slows down a bit before he lays his wrist back to buggy whip the racket head. You can call the buggy whip a small c but he doesn't have his wrist open as far as it can go until he does the whip i've seen this buggy whip used by a number of pros when i slow-mo their shots with my dvr is there a reason why you'd advise against incorporating a buggy whip since this technique adds a lot of racket head speed and and i i wrote the you know a Good re response to Lloyd there uh, in the comments. You can go check that out. And he responded again. We went back and forth a couple of different times. And basically my response to Lloyd is that I believe that it's not so much that laying the, the wrist and the hand back creates racket head speed. I believe that that laying back of the hand and the wrist is there because of the huge acceleration, because of the racket head speed, because Nadal is accelerating so aggressively and his arm is relaxed as he does so. As the kinetic chain starts to unwind towards the ball, and the hand, the wrist, the forearm are the last parts to kind of get dragged behind the body as the acceleration starts towards the ball. Because there's that big acceleration of the core forward towards the point of contact, the hand, because it's relaxed, naturally lays back, and then he actively uses that kind of load of his forearm and hand and wrist to accelerate towards the point of contact. So uh, this is a technique that I believe as players start to get more advanced and as it becomes appropriate for them to start accelerating faster, I think it's something that most players will start to naturally develop. It's something that is a detail. It's a small piece in the overall puzzle 
if you will, of a, a good forehand ground stroke. And I think it's it's a relatively advanced technique that, again, I think starts to develop as a player develops and as he or she starts to accelerate faster and hit more aggressively. So it's not something that I specifically have ever taught because I think there are just much more important technical elements that need to be in place first before ever worrying about creating racket head speed you know, as fast as possible. Most, most of the players, most of you listening are not to a level yet where this is something you should be concerned about. And so I focus on more important fundamental things first. And as far as the racket slowing down first, and, and this is kind of where we had our go, our back and forth, uh, going back and forth. I mean, in really slow motion, yeah, it does. De- the racket decelerates a little bit um, as it's dropping and, and the hand is laying back. But you have to keep in mind that's relative. You know, when you when you look at Nadal's forehand in however many hundred frames per second, and it starts to slow down, uh, like what Lloyd is talking about. You have to keep in mind that it's slowing down relative to its overall speed of swing, which is massive. It's huge. So, uh, it's a speed that we can't really comprehend. Not even myself, as a, a five-zero player, he accelerates way faster than I do. And most of you listening are, you know, three-five, four-zero level players, or, or maybe below that. And so, in my opinion, this is just something that really shouldn't even be considered by recreational players. Definitely not at first. Maybe once you start getting towards high 4.0 or 4.5, you can start maybe thinking about this and taking a look at it. But I know that most of my listeners are not up to that level yet, and so it's something that I feel is not essential. So you can go read all my comments at EssentialTennis.com slash podcast. And again, that was for episode number 153. Jerry and Lloyd, both of you, thank you for your comments. It was great conversing with both of you on the website. And if you have any comments about today's show, go leave them for episode number 154. And I'd I'd love to respond to those. All right, that does it for today's show. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care, and good luck with your tennis. Tennis.